released on Sunday, August 20th, 2017. This Agile Life, episode 128, Pickle Buckets. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Welcome to Amos's episode of This Agile Life. At least that's what Craig said right before we started. Uh, he told me I should start since this is my episode. Um, so this is Amos, and here with me tonight is Craig Buchak. Hey, folks! Uh, it's been a while. It's good to be back podcasting. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a good episode for you guys and gals. And uh, we're gonna have a little bit different topic tonight, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited. So um, I have my friend Josh Stacy here. Uh, he's the owner of Public House Brewing Company, or one of the owners. I better let the other Josh get a little credit in that. I'm the only one that matters. The only one that matters. Perfect. So um, Josh and I were hanging out one night, and we were talking about uh, process improvement and employees and. Since uh, Josh is not a software developer and um, brews beer uh, and makes some fantastic beer, as a matter of fact, I had a couple tonight, um, then we thought that some of his insights could be different than ours and, and um, maybe we could figure out how his insights could help programmers and maybe how our insights might be able to help him out too on the, on the brew floor. So welcome, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I hope. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, a lot of pressure. Uh, uh, well, you know, I hope that we're still friends after this is <laughs> over. Um, so, so we talked a lot, but uh, you know, I, I I talked earlier tonight about how this is hard for me because I know so much about your past and and where the brewery came from. But if you could kind of share your story, mm-hmm. um, and you even go back as like. I came out of my mom's womb, and or or wherever you want to start. Where I started think, drinking. Yeah. We, uh, nine is a little early. We might not want to talk. Is it statute of limitations? Up well, on yeah, it? I think so. Okay. I think we're safe on that. <laughs> we're I hope. I hope. Um, I don't want to go to jail after this. So, um, no. So um, this is something I, you know, I I talk to people a lot about beer, and and inevitably the question always comes up of why, how. Are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Where did it all come from? Um, and so there's there's a story behind it, and a lot of it just goes back to my childhood. Um, so I, I grew up in a family that made all of the beer that we drank. So growing up um, in the 80s, <laughs> um, you know, my family started making beer at home, amateur uh, in the garage or the carport or wherever we were at the time. Um, and again, I grew up in this household where this is all we were doing. Um, you know, we, I, I thought that that's what everyone did. Growing up, I thought everyone made the beer that they drank. So as a child, you know, you'd get up, i get up on, on the weekends and there would usually be some type of typical chore in our house would be things like, hey, you need to help mill in. Uh, you need to mill some grain or you need to, you know, help mom wash some bottles because we're doing bottling today or, you know, we need to dig this stuff out and set it up. So, um, again, it was just something that I thought everyone <coughs> did. Well, well, those sound like normal chores to me. I mean, I had to do dishes. Right. And so you were doing dishes <laughs> with mom. Um, I had to sweep the floor. Right. And, and, you know, so much of brewing is, is cleaning. That's, we're um, glorified janitors. Yeah. <laughs> That have a better end product. Right, right. And it smells less like bleach. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was probably, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there that I, I realized that most people just would go to the store and buy it. Um, but you have to remember, too, at, back in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of information that was readily, as readily available as it is today. You know, with the Internet, um, you know, there's tons of information that anyone can go out if they get interested in any kind of topic and find a plethora of information. So we were all self-taught and, and there was a very small amount of information that we were able to gather. Now my, my dad being in the computer field um, and we were on the internet, you know, in, in very, very early on in our household, um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, and 
we did have some access to some information, um, but there weren't books. There right. weren't. It, it was illegal to homebrew for quite a while. It was, right? yeah. So. It, the whole time we were doing this, you know, it, 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 brewing homebrewing in Missouri did not become legal until uh, I think it was 1994. So at a federal level, it actually wasn't even legal. Jimmy Carter was the one in 1976 that legalized it from a federal standpoint, but it took a long time for all the states, you know, to, to change their laws. And a lot of this was just antiquated laws from post-prohibition. Yeah, and, and now, like, not only do you have the internet, but we're sitting here next to a library of books that you have on brewing. Yeah. Um, and, and I homebrew, so I, I have read quite a bit, and I think without without that plethora of information, I would have been lost, but you kind of started out ahead of the game. We Yeah, I, I, I kind of joke when I talk to people, when they ask, you know, how did you get into brewing, and when did you get into it, and I start telling the story, and I said, you know, my first brew house, you know, homebrew setup was all stainless steel and with pumps <laughs> and, you know, the whole bit, because by the time I took it over, kind of as the family hobby, you know, we had gone so far down that rabbit hole. I mean, we started off just like everyone else with a couple of pickle buckets and a pot on the stove, but, you, you know, we were, everything, a lot of it was self-taught, a lot of it was finding a little bit of information that we could. And our home actually became kind of an, like a learning annex for brewers and people that wanted to know more about brewing. Um, and so that was the other part of it. Not only were we brewing, but we had a lot of people that would come over, you know, just friends of the family that thought it was kind of neat. And they would come over and we would teach them what we knew. And they would go home and they would try things and then they would come back. And, you know, this is a small brewing community was starting to form, you know, in rural Missouri. And, um, you know, Again, probably did my first batch by myself sometime in high school. Again, I wasn't drinking it. I was just making it. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, <laughs> um, Quality control, though. <laughs> right. And, again, a, a lot of it was just stuff that I, I thought everyone knew. I thought everyone knew about these processes and, and, and how to take grain and water and mix it together and ferment it. And, um, you know, I, I graduated high school, went off... Um, to, to college for a couple years and then ended up moving back to Rolla. And you, you did uh, networking? Yeah, so I started my career uh, in networking in 2000 and was in, in the Rolla area and that's when I had, um, met up with a friend of mine from high school, Josh Goodridge, who was the co-founder. And But before the beer thing, we had this whole music idea and we were going to... <laughs> Boys gotta have hobbies, right? <laughs> so we we had actually met playing music together, and um, so when we were when I got back, he was still playing music. I was still kind of playing music. He invited me over. We started playing music a lot. We started writing music. We formed a little band, and we started touring around the state of Missouri, um, playing our own music and and trying to make it as rock and roll stars while networking by day rocking by night um, and you know after about three or four years just like a lot of rock and roll dreams that fizzled out but what that did give us is it gave us a lot of time so that whole thing you know we, we spent a lot of our nights and weekends doing the music thing and now we had all this available time so I started getting back into brewing and as we were doing this and we were traveling around you gotta remember this is you know, early 2000s, so there weren't a lot of breweries in the state of Missouri, and there weren't really a lot of breweries in the U.S. It was still just starting to become fashionable again, so to speak. So when we were traveling, I would go and seek out these breweries in these cities that we were at, the one or two that were there, and started introducing Josh into craft beer and, and, and these breweries and, and these different styles of beer that he wasn't familiar with. So when the music thing fell short and I had all this extra time, I, you know, invited him over to teach him how to make beer. So he didn't grow up like you. No, he, no, you no. You guys didn't bottle he beer had a together very, at 12. Yeah. No, he had a very uh, different background. You should ask him about it sometime. Much more strict and much more traditional rural Missouri religious background that probably would not have been so happy about <laughs> more kids pro, making more beer. More prohibition-like. Yeah, thing. yeah, a little bit. You should talk to him about it one day. Um, so he started coming over and you know, I started teaching him and, and, and really kind of a relearning the process but was surprised at how much I retained you know from just being around it and inevitably when you make beer as you know because at some point during the brew day you have a few beers 
and usually uh, by the end of the brew day, you know, we have a couple of beers. I would jump up on my soapbox and talk about how, you know, this industry is getting ready to take off and I'm seeing it everywhere. And, you know, Rala, as odd as it is for a little community out in the middle of nowhere, is a great location, you know, with the university here, with Fort Leonard Wood being down the road, USGS, there's a lot of white collar business people in this area and a lot of international population in a very small area and on and on and on. I'm still on my soapbox apparently. (laughs) And, you know, he would listen and he would nod and agree and say, yeah, that sounds good and that sounds good. And after about, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half of weekend after weekend after weekend of me having these, you know, from the pulpit, um, he basically was just like, man, okay, let's either really look at this and consider looking at this from putting a business together and really trying it out or just shut up and let's just (laughs) drink beer and have a good time and just shut up. Um, So, you know, kind of put your money where your mouth is. And so we did what any smart young man would do at that point. Uh, We got the wives drunk. (laughs) <laughs> and I basically asked permission uh, to take this passion and this this hobby of mine and turn it try and turn it into a full fledged business, um, you know, which is a hard sell at any point in your life. But you know, my wife and I were at a point, you know, we were young and dumb enough and no kids yet, so um, she let me leave my very lucrative career in IT to try and go make beer as a full time profession. Um, so it took about three years from that inception point to opening the doors in our first location, which was in Rolla. So we opened our the first brew pub uh, in 2010 at the end of the year. And I remember when we were going through that opening phase, there was a lot of buzz in the area. I mean, this was a new new business, and you know, and of course we were. It's a small community. Word travels fast, and I remember a lot of people were very excited and following us. And we spent most of our money on equipment and the building, and we didn't have a marketing budget. We didn't have any any of the traditional, you know, grand opening ideas. Um, one, because we were very nervous, and and so we had basically had a sign that on the window that said "coming soon," and and that was it. That was I our big. That yeah, that was our big. We're, we're we're almost here, and I remember uh, the four of us, my wife and I, and Josh and his wife, were sitting in the in the pub on a, I think it was a Wednesday night. And we were talking, and we just, I mean, everything was in place, and we were just, you know, when we were going to pull the trigger, we said, well, why don't we just open tomorrow? We'll just unlock the door, <laughs> and we'll just, we'll just see what happens, right? We'll, we'll just see what happens. This is very <laughs> agile. Wow. Yeah. Right? Like, I guess. <laughs> so. Maybe too agile. <laughs> so we were going to, soft open, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not going to try too hard. We're just, we, we need to get our feet under us. So the next day at four o'clock, we unlocked the doors and took the opening, coming soon, sign down flip the sign to open and you know you know where we are we're in the thoroughfare downtown yeah and that night we probably had about a hundred people that wow. came through the doors and everyone's on their phone and they're like they're open they're here <laughs> you got to come down here um a little overwhelming but great you know and so that weekend standing room only in the brewery and i was giving a lot of tours of our of our brew house and and just talking to people about beer. And I remember talking to, giving this tour, and there was a guy, and he, and he raised his hand and said, I got a question for you. I said, okay. He said, uh, how much beer would we have to drink to, to wipe you guys out of products? And I was like, well, man, I appreciate the enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Go for it. Let's try it. I was like, well, you, I was like you have to understand this. Is, we're, you know, we're constantly making products, and, and we've got tanks here. And, and, and as as you're drinking it, we're making it, and we're throughout the steps of the process. But no, I I, I don't think that's going to be an issue. I hope I, I hope it's an issue, but I don't think it's going to be an issue. So seven days later, we were completely out of product, <laughs> <laughs> and I learned to just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Um, he took you up on it. He did, I, and the rest of the community. So, I mean, again, good problems to have, but, you know, it, it really just started, you know, the snowballing effect. So we, you know, we opened, we closed. Good thing was, is it was near Christmas time, so we took a holiday break, closed the doors, and we were back there just trying to get things going as fast as we could. 
Um, open back up. I think we had one beer on tap. It's hard to speed up yeast. It, you can't. Yeah. I mean, the process, the process <laughs> takes as long as it does. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, I think we open back up. There, there's an analogy for software there. You know, it's ready when it's ready. Yeah. 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 You, you can't, you can't rush it. Um, but it's okay to make it ready early and get some feedback. Yes, for sure. Um, so yeah, we opened back up. I think we had one beer and we brought a couple of guest taps in and, and that was, you know, the start of this, this crazy adventure. We, we hired, uh, we ended up hiring a brewer that February. So just three months after we wow. opened, we had to hire another brewer just to keep up. Um, you know, we outgrew that facility um, as far as the production capacity in two years. We'd max out. Sounded like seven days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we kind of had to figure out what we were doing. Get a little bit better, a little bit more efficient at what we were doing. Um, and then, you know, after two years, we kind of maxed out. I mean, there was no, physically, no more beer that we could make. So we had to start thinking about what we were going to do. Um, do we just stay here with this success that we have and just keep grinding it out and make this amount of beer? Or do we try and chase the demand that is obviously there? And that's what really what we wanted to do. And now we just had to figure out how we were going to do it. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat. And so we started exploring what those options were. You know, do we do we look at contract brewing, which is oh. do we find another brewery, hopefully somewhere within fairly close range that isn't at capacity, and see if we can you know, have them make our recipes for us and basically make our beer for us to supply the demand. Um, it takes a lot of trust there. It does. It's, and it's, a, and it's a lot of work and it was definitely a, a four letter word in the industry for a very long time. You know, like you're not making your own beer, you're having somebody <laughs> else do it. And like, no, I mean, we still have control, you know, we're just hiring out. Um, so we were seriously considering that option. Um, we were looking at, you know, could we, could we squeeze a little bit more into this small box that we're in? Um, do we go put a metal building up somewhere just to produce and nothing else and just to feed this tasting room we have in Rala? Um, so we're exploring all those options and we were out at the uh, craft beer conference which was our big industry national conference that year was in DC and we were out there having this conversation trying to figure out what we're going to do and I remember that we had been I'd had some conversations with the folks over at the winery here in town St. James Winery and, you know, they'd frequented our establishment and we got to know them over the years and they had hinted around it, maybe wanting to have a conversation about beer. Very vaguely, not, not really <laughs> knowing what that meant, but we were really exhausting all options. So we gave them a holler and um, started the conversation with them. And what it got down to is that uh, Peter Hofer, who is the current CEO of St. James Winery, his parents had started it, the winery back in 1970. And back at, before that, his dad, who started the winery, was a QAQC guy for Falstaff Brewing Company up in St. Louis. So he came from beer and retired to become a winemaker. And now his son, who had taken over the business, kind of maybe wanted to maybe get back into beer a little bit. Um, and knowing what we were doing and looking at and, and getting to know us, we started courtship. I mean, we started dating, essentially. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, we gotta we gotta feel each other out. We gotta see, you know, if this is gonna work or not. And and that ended up turning into um, a partnership where the the winery um, bought part of the brewery and was able to inject some capital into it so that we could build this production facility that we're in now. So that was into we we started uh, we broke ground in 2014, the beginning of the year, and we were producing beer, manufacturing beer out of this facility by the end of the year. So a very quick um, construction project and, you know, the whole thing was on a very, very fast track. Um, and we then started distributing throughout the state of Missouri uh, early 2015. So we now distribute our product throughout the entire state. Um, our scale has grown tremendously. So, you know, we, we produce... In about three weeks at this facility, we produce what we, we had been producing annually at our first location. Wow. So pub, public house beers are only available in Missouri right now? Um, we do have a little carve out in, in, in Arkansas. So we're kind of in that northeast, or I'm sorry, northwest corner of Arkansas. 
where the colleges are. Um, so we're in that little bit. We're looking at potentially, you know, some other states, hopefully in the next year or so, to to go into. Um, yeah, so it completely different. We went from you know a, a, a brew pub where everything that we sold uh, was consumed very quickly over the bar in our tasting room in Rolla to a facility, a, a manufacturing facility where we're we're manufacturing a food product on a very large scale and distributing it over a, a very large geographical area considering where we were two years ago. So do, do your, did your recipes need to change in yeah, order to do that? They did. Um, and that, that took um, a little bit of time. The good thing about it though is that we, you know, we'd been through a scale up before. If you think about it, I mean, we were in a garage making 10 gallons of beer at a time. And when we started that, we spent a lot of time trying to scale those recipes up and perfect them to make a hundred gallons at a time. So the process to do that, we got pretty good at. So then to go from a hundred gallon batches to 600 gallon batches was a lot easier. We learned a lot that first round. So the second round, the scale up was actually quite a bit quite a bit easier. We've kind of gotten a process put together. We, we, we understood, you know, that it's not all linear. You know, we're not just adding 10 times the amount of ingredients to get 10 times the amount of beer. Um, so understanding that, um, the learning curve was much shorter that second go around. So, so what, um, what are like some of the big takeaways that you get in trying to scale a process? Like what are things that um, if you if somebody else came to you and said I'm I'm making beer at my house and I'm going to open a, a brewery mm-hmm. and uh, we're looking at doing 300 gallons of beer yeah most I've ever made is five at a time right w- what do I need to be be doing um, you know the, the the main thing regardless of the the amount of beer that you're making um, a lot of it really just gets down to really understanding the equipment that you're using um, and, and being able to quantifiably understand it. So you, you need to understand how much more efficient economy of scale is. And so when you get larger, um, the equipment gets much more sophisticated. So I can get more from less. Um, so I don't need as much grain ratio wise to get the same amount of sugar when I'm going to a bigger, more sophisticated piece of equipment. We also helped design the equipment when we did this second facility in an effort to make it more efficient. So we actually worked with the engineers at the, the company that built our brew house and helped them understand the brewing process better so that they could make the equipment um, actually better, really. Make it more efficient so that our yields would be greater. Um, but the big, the big takeaway is, is, is take time. Um, and don't get caught up in, in maybe losing a batch, you know? And, and, and I tell this story a lot. I was actually talking to a student today um, from the university about it. And I said, you know, the biggest thing, I think, the biggest win for us, and, and what I always hold my hat on is that we're not afraid to fail. Um, and we have a very high standard uh, for what we do. And we have a, a very low tolerance. And if we, if we are outside of those we're not afraid to scrap it and start over. So the first year, as an example, the first year we were in, in Rala and we brewed, I dumped 10% of the beer that we made. Yeah. So new business, just put all, every penny I had into it, right? And to throw away 10% of the product that I made, um, for me, wasn't as hard as it sounds. It, I, a lot of people didn't get it. You know, at first, like, why would you do that? Why, why, why? You, there was nothing really that wrong with it. And that's where I stopped him. I said, yeah, but there was something that was a little wrong with it. And for me, it was more about, um, I'm trying to get people to buy into a product that a lot of people have never tried before. Had no idea what we were doing. You know, I'd never tried these different styles of beer and these different flavor profiles. So I get a lot of people that are coming in there for the first time, basically naked and have no idea what the hell we're doing. And I would prefer my customers naked. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And, you know, what I didn't want to do is I didn't want him to come in and say, well, here's something that's almost right, and I want you to try that, and I want you to give me full price for it. And I'm not really going to even have that conversation with you, and you're going to say, well, that's the, that's it? That's what it is? Okay. Well, this is what I thought. It's not very good. I'm going to go back to drinking what I was drinking. For me, it was more about giving them the best possible product that I could. And I knew that if I could do that, it was worth missing out on that $5 for that pint because if I could get that customer's trust and that we were always going to have it, then I knew I was going to have a, a customer for life and that $5 now turns into thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. So, so impact-wise, I know that you, you had a fairly quick timeline. Um, do you think it would have been faster if you had made some of those concessions or or do you think that long, like over the lifetime of your business so far that it's actually moved faster because you refuse to make those I, I wholeheartedly think that it's because we made we we have such a high standard I think that I think that the customer and our customers knowing that and being transparent about that and not being ashamed of it that we screw up <laughs> we you know and not being ashamed of that and and owning it I think has helped us mm-hmm. tremendously than if we were to just go about our day and and, and just put out whatever we could. I, I think I see that a lot in software too, that the long-term winning strategy over the short-term winning strategy pays off shorter than you might think. Mm-hmm. Like people think the long-term strategy is gonna take months or years, and sometimes it's more like weeks or months. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, I could make $500 more <laughs> if I had just sold that beer. Yeah. But if I don't, then I lose that and everybody's looking at like this week yeah. instead of next year. Well, I mean, yeah, and in, in, and in this world that we live in now, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very critical world and everyone's got a million different ways to voice their opinion and share it with all <laughs> of the people that they know. So if I have one bad experience, that's not really just one person that had a bad experience. That's them and every single person that they know and follow them on social media and everything else. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, always putting the best foot forward and and I'm not always going to please everyone and I'm not always going to have everyone I don't I don't expect that but for me it's a conscious and integrity thing that if I did the best that I possibly could then I can I can go go home and sleep and some people don't like it don't like great beer well, well, some people don't like beer. Yeah, and, that, and that's and that's fine. And that's or that's a always given been, style. Yeah, you know? and that's always been our, our our motto is that we're not we're not better than any other brewery and we're not better um, and, and, and we're not better because we like this and we're not better. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an ego thing. And, and, and it, I think it runs throughout a lot of industries and, and a lot of different walks of life. But, you know, I, I fought that battle with my staff over the years is that you're not because just because you work at the only brewery in 100 miles doesn't make you any better than anybody else. And you've got to get over that. Um, and you need to check that at the door because this is about evangelizing people more than you showing off that you know more about beer than they do. So one of the the ways I like to think about this, so you guys make a, a cream ale, mm-hmm. and you know, there's some people that are going to like a cream ale, and there's some people that aren't going to like a cream ale. But if the first time they have one is that one that you didn't quite hit right, and they try it and like, yeah, this isn't very good, they're not going to try a cream ale anymore. Right. But if you wait until you get that cream ale the way that a cream ale is supposed to taste, and they have it the first time, they're going to be like, oh, this is good. I like this. I'm going to keep drinking this. Yeah. So that that's the way I think of it. Like, the first time someone tries something, don't push it on them before it's ready. And, you know, I, I was like this when Linux was, was new. Like, okay, it's good. It's really good at a lot of things. But let's not push it on people where it's not ready for yet. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the way I like to think of things. Don't get overly excited and, and try to push things that aren't ready or, they're, or that they're not ready for. And in fact, that's sort of Amos's and I philosophical difference. Like, <laughs> I don't push people into things they're not ready for or I don't think they're ready for. And, and Amos is more likely to, to push that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm more likely to be like, hey, have you, have you tried the cream ale? It's good. And they're like, I don't, I don't really like beer. And I'm like, e- you probably like this beer. <laughs> so that's me. Yeah. Um, I'm a little more pushy. And Craig's like, okay, you don't like beer? All right, I'll come back tomorrow. Well, but I, <laughs> maybe we'll try a cider, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and, we, and, and it's hard to find that balance because, in, for yeah, me in yeah. particular too, because you know, I this has been such a big part of my life for most of my life, and so I'm very passionate about this, and it is it is hard. It's just like when you when you find that new band or you read that book that's killer, or you see that movie that you just have to go tell everyone about, right? That's, that's how I am every day when we make something. Like, it's really hard for me to contain it and not to just go like, man, have you had this? <laughs> this will change your life. And that's how we are. As, as, as human beings, that's how we are. I mean, we want to be, we want to be the ones to, to tell and, and, and to show off the things that we hopefully maybe found first, you know, it's, it, it, it makes us feel better. So how do you share that passion with your staff and your customers? Um, you know, the, the biggest thing that, uh, I, I try to hit home with, with my staff, with, with my customers, with anybody that on this is that it, it's, it's one person at a time and everyone's different. And the conversation is not always going to be the same, you know? And so it's not about a script. It's not about learning, you know, buzzwords and keywords. It's about getting to know somebody. And once you, once you get to know them and you understand where they're coming from, I think you have a much better chance of making that sell. You know, it's, it's not, I know I'm passionate about it. I know I love this product and I know I want you to try it, but you know, that may not be your thing. You know, I, I could have this band that I absolutely love, right? And I come to you, and but I know it's not your style of music. You hate that genre. You've never liked anything that has come out of, you know, 70s rock. So why am I going to come and, and tell you about this band that I know you're probably not going to like? That's not going to be the right approach. I can't come over the top at you, right? I can't start, mm-hmm. well, you, you like music, so you have to like this. <laughs> you, and if you don't like then you don't really like music. And now I'm going to start attacking you. And that's just not, and so that's the big, you know, that I, I fought that a lot the first year because it, again, it gets back to it's, I'm not any better than you because I like this music or I drink this beer or whatever else, you know, so you got to contain that, uh, you know, that emotion, you know, and, and really figure out what that person is. Like, it's not about, you know, that's, so that's, that's, that's the battle. That's what we've been fighting a lot. That's a really hard emotion to contain whenever you're really passionate. Like whenever you are in love with what you do, it's hard not to want to be like, no, no, you have to love it too. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But like I said, if you do, if you try to get them excited too early, they're going to push back harder than if you waited or found the right way to convince them. Well, and, and I think, a lot of that, like you talked about connecting with, with your um, customers or mm-hmm. your, your uh, staff, and that it's kind of a, it's a building of a trust issue. Once somebody trusts you, even if they say, I don't like beer, and you're like, you know, we've known each other for a while, and I've seen what you drink, and this beer you, you might actually like. You're, yeah. They're more likely to say, okay, sure, and look at it openly versus... At the beginning, if you even if you knew all that, since they don't trust you and you're saying, hey, try this, before they even get it to their mouth, they're already curling their nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I had a couple um, ladies that were in here a few months ago, and they sat at the bar and asked the bartenders if, they, if we had anything, if we had a gluten-free beer. And, you know, our bartender's like, no, we don't have anything gluten-free, but we have cider. Like, yeah, I don't really like cider. And they're like, okay, well, that's all we have to offer. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. And so they kind of didn't really win that one, right? And I just happened to be walking through the tasting room, and they were there eating. Continue, you know, they had a meal, but you know, they weren't they weren't drinking. And somehow I got over there and I started talking with them. And I just started talking with them, just like we're talking right now. We're just having a conversation, and like, well, you know, we like this place. It's very nice, and we, we you know, we just got here, and you know, the food's good, and the garden looks beautiful, and you know, we're just having a chit chat and conversation. And you know, twenty minutes into it. She said, hey, so why don't you guys have gluten-free beer? She's like, you guys really need to make a gluten-free beer. And then I was able to have a, a longer conversation with her about why we don't, because when we make a gluten-free beer, I have a son who has a gluten intolerance, and so I have to at some point make a gluten-free beer. <laughs> <laughs> Is he nine yet? He's not. He's not nine yet. He's okay. only four, so I got some time. Five, Five years. years. Five but, years. <laughs> you know, I had this conversation with her. I said, you know, so when we do it, we want to do it right. And I said, I've tried a lot of gluten-free beers, and I don't 
and I personally don't really like any of them. She's like, yeah, most of them aren't very good. I said, so we want to try and make a gluten-free beer that tastes like beer. Because a lot of people, you know, for in her case, she used to drink beer, and then she found out that she had a gluten intolerance, and she stopped drinking beer. But we had this conversation. I got to dig a little bit deeper with her, and all of a sudden, she's like, well, okay. So there's some integrity issues. You know, you're, you're about making the best gluten-free beer that you possibly can, and it's not ready yet. It, you know, even for me, I don't even have the recipe figured out in my head yet. But I, I know that when we do it, we want to do it great. Through that conversation, she's like, well, I saw that you guys had cider, but I don't really like cider. I was like, well, but you should try this cider. It's a lot different. It's not the big-time ciders that you get. It's more European. Gave her a sample. She's like, that's actually pretty good. And then she ended up <laughs> drinking cider the rest of the afternoon. And had a lovely conversation and was ready for me to call her up when I get that gluten-free recipe done. <laughs> so, again, it's, it's it, a lot of its approach, and it goes back to your point. You know, you can't just, for like, I got this or this, and if you don't like it, too bad. This is all I got, you know. Um, there's, always, there's always another answer. There's always another. It's a lot like us with our customers. Building that trust is... Is a great long-term strategy, it's, it's but it takes a lot of time. One. It does. Right. It does. It, it, you know, if I could, I don't have enough time to spend 45 minutes with each of my customers, but I wish I could. <laughs> so Josh Amos has, he has told me a story that that's actually your story um, about trust and and your employees. I just make shit up, so it might not be true. <laughs> so hopefully, your story is somewhat similar to his story. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think this is uh, this is the story about the little spill, yeah, the, or the big spill, or the big spill, the little the spill, spill that became sort of a big spill. The, became, the names, the, the, the little names spill that up. became a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, we we were uh, we've got a a team that works in our cellar, and um, we've got a, a guy that has had been around for a few months. He's probably he'd probably been with us about four to five months at this point, and. Um, he was in the process of cleaning out one of our tanks and you know you walk through a brewery and, and it just seems so like docile and there's really not a lot of hazard and anything else but when you there is there's a tremendous yeah. amount of very dangerous things that are going on I'm sure osha will tell you all about them they, yeah um, <laughs> and so i was over uh, in another building and i was having a meeting and i was getting my morning cup of coffee and and i get a phone call and it's from our head brewer, and he said, Josh, where are you at? <laughs> and I said, I'm over at the winery, but I could already tell by the inflection that something was really wrong. And he said, you need to get over here. And I'm, I'm like, all right. So I take off running across the parking lot. I chuck my coffee across the parking lot. <laughs> so and it's just about 100 feet or so. Yeah. Not and, too far and, I, and I'm running across the parking lot to, to running because I know at this point something bad has really happened. I still don't know what it is, but something bad is definitely going on in the brewery. So I blow into the brewery and and down at the far end of the brewery, our our packaging supervisor is, is holding his hand against a port on one of the tanks that has about... 600 gallons of finished product in it that's under about 25 psi of pressure um and there's a guy behind him holding his hand there so what, <laughs> and they're sitting and there everywhere. and there's just and as i walked through when i opened the door the whole brewery just smelled like ipa i mean it was just <laughs> unmistakable ipa and i knew what had happened um, before I even got down there and he he had he was cleaning a tank and this tank was empty and he was working on it and he got distracted and when he turned around to break the tank apart which is to take all the valves off he was some he's one tank over and he wasn't paying attention and he goes to take the valve off and you're talking a fire hose of beer I mean that kind of pressure that kind of volume coming out and um, he's he's you know, holding it and he's freaking out and what do we do? And we quickly get all the beer over to another tank and they're sitting there holding it. But when I say quickly, it took about <laughs> 25 minutes. So they're holding this, the two guys are holding this stuff back, you know, and we get everything over and, you know, that we're kind of surveying the damage and everyone's okay. No one got hurt, luckily. I mean, that was, that was my number one question and everyone's fine. Um, it, it, you know, except for pride. You know, and, and there was a lot of, you know, walking around with the tail between their legs and, and really, really freaking out. And we, I was talking with the brewer and I said, well, um, 
you know, we, we don't know what we don't know, so we're going to go ahead and, and dump this batch. You know, we're going to dump 620 gallons of beer down the drain. And the packaging supervisor just sunk. He was just like, okay. He's like, I'm done. And he's like, so... He's the, he's the one who He's the that one part. that, that okay. un, undid the valve the yeah. and made the mistake. And he said, and you know, and, and <clears throat> but he's, you know, he came up to me and he said, so, um, you know, uh, he's like, I understand, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Um, you know, I know that was a lot of money and, you know, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, you know, if you got to let me go, you got to let me go. And, and I told him and I said, you know, no, I said, I'm not... No, it's fine. It's not. You're you're fine. You're you're still upright. You're breathing. No no damage. That's more important. And I said, you know, I said, you'll you'll never make this mistake again. And I wasn't really trying to be, you know, an ass. But <laughs> you know, and I wasn't trying to make him feel bad. I was trying to make a point. And and I said, you know, I, I nothing's gonna happen here. You know, we lost some beer, and that's horrible. None of us like to lose beer. You know. We're all a little sad right now, but but at the end of the day, you know, you made a mistake, but I guarantee you will never make that mistake again. And I also guarantee that you're going to be a lot more cautious going forward. And he said, yeah, he said, and, and, and so I left and, and he went and he thought about it and he came back up to my office a little while later and he was like, so he's like, no, I mean, he's like, why, why aren't you mad? Why aren't you like I mean, if you need to start deducting money for my paycheck to pay for, I'm like, no. I was like, it's fine. Like, you know, we got the mess cleaned up. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And then I shared a story with him from when I was in IT. So I was new, green, wet behind the ears, as all get out. And I was the network administrator in IT, and we had a very old, archaic DOS-based um, program that would transfer our payroll from one system to the other, our payroll files before we would run payroll. And it was kind of arduous and it was one of these things where, you know, an IT guy had to do it because it wasn't really for, you know, the, the payroll HR department to do. <laughs> Not the faint of heart. No, so the HR department <laughs> would always call IT and they're like, we need to do, we need you guys to do the transfer. And this is something that was written in house, you know, and this guy had written it 15 years prior and it was completely outdated. And, and the guy, I, I had, I had, he was no longer working for the company. So we still had this antiquated piece of software that none of us knew anything about except for how to use it. But we knew none of the backstory or anything else. And I get in and it's, they're like, well, I want you to run it this time. This is something, this is a task that you'll have going forward. So I want you to do it. And, you know, green, went behind the ears, didn't make a backup, didn't do anything else, just went and zipped it over and lost the entire payroll for... Uh, somewhere between three and five hundred people. Ooh, ouch. Gone. And my boss comes over and asks me what happened, and I explain to him, and he's like, okay. And, you know, we had to call this guy out of retirement to come in <laughs> and see if there was any way that there was anything that we could do. And he was there um, for about a day and a half. And just, probably making a lot more money than he did when he worked there. Probably, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, he was very, he was an old, bitter programmer. And he was like... That's redundant. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember during this whole process, he was like, well, why isn't this kid in here taking care of this? I mean, he screwed it all up. Why is he even here? He, blah, blah, you know, just mad. He didn't even work for the company anymore, but he was mad. <laughs> but he wanted to fire you. Yeah, he wanted to fire me. And and my boss basically said the same thing. And he brought me in with this old bitter programmer and him. And he said, Josh, he said, uh, he said, you know what you did? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you know what you did wrong? And I said, yeah. He's like, will you ever make that mistake again? I said, no. No, no, <laughs> <Hell> sir. <laughs> and he said, okay, we're done. And he put a lot of, you know, a lot of faith in me. And I was much more cautious going forward anytime I had to deal with that. And that, and that was, you know, something that always stuck with me from, from a guy that was a mentor of mine when I was in IT is that we, everyone makes mistakes. You're going to screw up. I screwed up plenty of times in my life. And, um, you know, I, I got a lot further and I got a lot more faith and trust from this employee now, you know, than I would have if I would have just gone off the rails and... And, and you know, sent him home and deducted his payroll, whatever. And to me, you know, he probably ended up with he probably be one of the best employees you ever had. Well, so yeah. <laughs> he trusts you, and he feels like you trust him. Mm -hmm. You've shown him that pretty much. Yeah. Um, but he trusts you more now. 
Um, also, when he goes to train someone, he'll probably be training several people yes. on the process. Guess what he's going to really emphasize? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in particular, like maybe even come up with a process improvement, like let's mark the t- this tank that I'm cleaning it with green or red or something right. like that. Like find a way to make sure that no one makes the same mistake. Exactly. Not just me not making that mistake, but people after me. Um, you no, know, I think when you show that trust too, you also give people the opportunity to make those improvements and feel like they can. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll just be like, we're just going to do whatever Josh says. And if he didn't tell us exactly how to do it, then we won't do it. Right. There, uh, a month or two ago, there was uh, an article going around or um, someone, I think it was his first day or at least his first week as a, as a programmer. And he wiped out the production database. Was that GitLab? <laughs> no, no. Because GitLab had a no. guy wipe out this, their production database. This was a guy, it was his first day or first week or something, and, he, and they fired him. And everyone's like, "If okay, first of all, why did you give the new guy the production database password on the first day? <laughs> right. Second of all, why didn't you train him to not wipe it out? Like, this is not his fault. Like, mm-hmm. it's a training issue, generally. Like, when people make mistakes, it's usually more the system, the training... That, that broke down then hey, it wasn't him trying to make a mistake no. or it wasn't him you know maybe he was having a bad day but more likely it was it was it was some sort of system that broke down or the training or you know the processes that broke down so, so you're saying the packaging manager didn't go hey you guys I yeah. bet we can get Josh over here real fast yeah, if I yeah, do this yeah. tank. <laughs> oh, I hope not. <laughs> Especially given it was something that if he would have been standing in the wrong spot, he probably would have been injured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's you know, and and again, that's most of our most of our process improvement um, in the brewery over the years has come from mistakes. Yeah, you know, and and a lot of times it's again, it's not that it's it, most of the time it's what you don't know. That's that gets you in trouble, and that's what we found is that um, you know this is this is still new to most of my staff to a certain level. It's there's still things that are new to me, and a lot of things that we're still figuring out kind of as we go. Um, and you know most of most of what it comes down to is you know you don't know what you don't know until something goes horribly wrong. Yeah, and, um, and, and at your level, I, I've looked around. And there's there doesn't seem to be. A little, I mean, there there's a community out there of people who are doing the same thing as mm-hmm. you, but like you, you can't go to Anheuser Busch and say, "Hey, how are how are you guys doing this?" Because their process is so <laughs> different mm-hmm. in how they go about getting things done. They might be able to give you some pointers, but the things that work for you don't necessarily work for them, and right. the things that work for them don't necessarily They've work. They've got for you. a lot of automation in place. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it and every every brew house is is different, and every every um, you know every process is is similar at a very high level. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, every every place you go is going to be different, um, and 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 that's a big part of. Of what we've been doing, and and what when we when we scaled up, when you grow quickly, um, you know that's a that's a big thing that we had to learn, or I had to really come to terms with, is that it's no it's no longer one guy doing all of it. I now have a whole team of people, and if I want this to be done consistently and and to our specs and within our tolerance, I owe them, you know, a procedure. I owe them um, instruction on on how we want it done, you know. So we've put in, you know, this goes really back to our quality assurance program that we've been putting in and writing SOPs for every single step of the process, so that there really is no question. Um, and this is something that that they give, and we we have them even, you know, the idea is, is that you even have SOP days where you're not doing it, you're doing it line for line out of the book. Regardless, you've done it a hundred times. Today, we're doing it line for line out of the book. Using using so, the checklist today, and, and, and really, it's to go to make sure, like, is it still relevant? Is yes. it still is it still current? Because things change all the time, and we and we change processes and we tweak things constantly. And so, to make sure that we have that, and so when that new guy comes awesome. in and it's day one, I should be able to hand him the book, and if he has some experience in the field, say, read this. This is how we clean a tank now. 
And there's a funny story in here too, but this is why we why, do it this why way. are we putting this label on the tank? <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's and, and that's again as in my position as, as the director of all of these operating um, operations. I mean that's that's what I owe them. Um, you know, if if I want it done and I have a have that that's that's my what I have to bring to the table well, and, you, and you're after a fairly consistent product with a consistent flavor profile um, so I spent I spent 13 years in the Air Force doing communications and anytime that we worked on a radio we had SOP and you said an SOP day every time we worked on something we were required to have the book open and if somebody walked by and said what are you doing we better be able to point to the step on the page that we're on. But our ability to change that process was fairly limited. Like mm-hmm. you could write in and say, hey, we think you should make this change. And maybe in two years, somebody would come back and say, yeah. And you would get like an award for it. But <laughs> the likelihood, and by the right. time you got the award, you're like, what? I don't remember writing that. Right. Um, so what is is your process for the people out on the floor that are that are hands-on making this happen and following those procedures to to be able to improve and change those procedures and even even if not improve maybe do you have a pro maybe this is a separate question but a process for experimenting um no absolutely so we we have no nothing sacred there are no sacred cows in the brewery you know and and this whole idea that uh, you know, my philosophy is just because that's the way I've been doing it for seven years doesn't mean that that is the right way or the only way to do it. And we try to have an open dialogue constantly. Um, you know, again, with economy of scale, we, your, your problems multiply as well. Yeah. Right. So things that never really were a concern when you were smaller are now much more of a concern um, at this scale. And so, well, this is the way we were doing it when we were making 100 gallons of beer at a time, and that really wasn't relevant. But now, because of the manufacturing nature of what we're doing, a lot of these things have become very relevant. And so, you know, we're constantly changing them. You know, how, how we clean, how we clean tanks, how we, you know, how we're moving beer around, how we're doing, you know, any of the processes, our, our packaging process, um, all of those things. We're constantly tweaking them. And the guys have full reign. They, they have access to all the SOPs. They can go in, they can make the changes, and they submit them for review. And then once they get through the review process, it's, we usually try to have two people look at it, make sure it makes sense, and then we'll put it, put it into place. I mean, it's a very uh, dynamic right now, and a lot of that has to do with um, because of where we are, you know, as far as our, our growth. And, and a lot again, we didn't have this stuff three years ago right and and what we've what I've come to understand and through the help of a good mentor that of mine the production manager at the winery if I can do it now and get all this stuff in place and we can and we continue to grow it's better to do it now because if we can continue to grow at this pace and I try to start doing this stuff two or three years from now it's it's almost too late you know, you've already picked up all these bad habits. You've already, you know, like people don't want to follow. Well, why? We've never had an SOP before. And, you know, it's just, it's just, it gets, it, it can we get hairy. Tests. Yeah. And so, you know, really what we're trying to do, we've always tried to run our, our, our business as if we were much bigger than we actually were. So if there been anything, so you, you partnered with the winery that's been around since the 70s mm-hmm. and you know since I've known about the winery they've been shipping all over are yes. they I think they're do they even ship worldwide or just um, states I'm just sure. within I think there were about 20 some states that okay. they're in. yeah I know I know there are they're kind of all over the place so did they come to you with some things saying hey you should look into doing putting these things in place because you're gonna want them later mm-hmm. and some of them that you were like no but now you've been appreciative that's exactly how it up. went. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, you need to have an SOP manual, and you need to do, 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 do. And I'm like, yeah, 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 we'll get to that. I got to make beer. Turns out people that have been doing things for 30 years have some clue on exactly. how things yeah. work. Yeah. That's, and, why, that's why I still listen to Kim Beck. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you have to understand that the you know the the, the head winemaker over here, Andrew Maggot, I mean, he has not only worked here, but he has he's made wine on three different continents. He's scaled up a number of wineries in his career. He knows what he's doing, and he's done it all over the world. 
So to have that kind of resource and to have a guy that would willing just come in here and sit down and BS with me and be like, oh yeah, Josh, you start working on that, that manual yet? You know, you need to get you need to get these things going. Um, you know, that's that's been huge. Um, Craig's giving me the wrap it up symbol. <laughs> well, we can't go for two hours, you know. <laughs> Why not? I feel like no we, one's gonna keep listening. I feel like we could talk a whole. I mean, lot. we could we'll, talk another ten we'll minutes. Split it into two episodes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, if someone wants to make a change, like to the SOP, mm-hmm. you, you said you have a process. About how long does it take for them to get through the review? Uh, from from the time that they they write something or come and tell you, hey, I think we should change this. How long before? So it, it's standard. Honestly, most of the time, what ends up happening is we we usually just right there on the spot. We'll just start having a discussion, um, and we'll usually, if depending upon the severity of the change, um, you know, I might get my head brewer involved, and we'll start talking about it, and we'll work it out. Because they'll make the usually what happens is they bring up something that isn't necessarily even seem relevant to what they're doing and you're like oh well okay and we start thinking about like well okay i think why that's happening is because of this thing we were doing over here so now we actually got to go back three steps in the process and probably fix that step um so a lot of times we will just literally do it on the fly on the floor and we'll kind of make a decision then and there if we want to change something and we will and then we'll actually put it into practice well before we even write the procedure and we'll start it and we'll see, it's kind of like a trial by error. So we'll see if it actually does, what, you know, fix what we think it's gonna fix. And if it does fix what it thinks we're gonna fix, then, you know, then, okay, now, now we're doing this going forward and it's all verbal and this is, okay, everyone knows now we're changing the processes, how we're gonna do it. And then, you know, hopefully one day we get down to writing it down <laughs> and, and, and putting it well, in the book. Well, that's we, what the SOP day is exactly. about. Exactly, and that's why, uh, it, and it's, it's that's where a lot of smaller breweries or, or just smaller businesses in general, when it's a few guys and you're having that conversation with the three guys in the room, it's kind of easy to just say, oh, we'll all know. We all know. It's, it's we all know. Easier to move and, that and we're just going to and we're just going to move forward with this and we're going to we're not going to document it. Um, but the reason that we, we you need to do it is, again, if you grow and you add three more guys in the next year, yep. it's nice to have that like. I don't have, now I'm so busy, I don't have time to teach you everything. Here's a book that'll help you get caught up. Or, you know, people cycle out. I mean, all the time. Or, or you sell it off and, yeah. you know, here's, here's how to run the brewery. Right. So how many people um, touch a batch from beginning to end? Um, Possibly here. I mean, I, I, some of them may have a lot less people, but, like, if everybody that yeah. is involved in your beer making touches um, a batch... We're probably at just about a, about a half. <laughs> well, we have about a we have about a half dozen in the uh, in the production side of it. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you were to throw everybody in the mix, the bartenders and servers who are really the ones at the end of the day that are touching it and giving it and selling it, we're just under fifty uh, employees between both locations. So I've got I've got a question about your process changes, and, and I'm thinking about this SOP day is maybe a uh, a practice I might actually start using. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds awesome. Because you guys are doing really well at your documentation that we have a problem Mo- with in most, our industry. Most programming. Yeah. Yeah. It's don't. Not, not very well done. Uh, although a lot of teams are starting to automate some things that, that can be automated. In my pull request but, right now, I, any external facing <clears throat> API function must have documentation or I fail the, fail nice. the pull request. My, my question is, so, you know, you made a process change because someone, you know, Pulled the wrong lever on the wrong tank, and you, and you made a change to that process. How do you keep track of when you've got your SOP? How do you keep track of why certain things are there? Like why these, why why these why sets the of procedures are the way yeah. they are? Yeah. Um, so right now we don't really have a formal process for why they are the the way they are. Most in those instances, some some of the time though, it, it does follow over into another part of our training which is which is the safety part of it um and so a lot of times a lot of that'll get recapped when we do our annual trainings or or by you know and and we try to spread it out so we're not just doing it all at once um so that is one thing that we don't really include in there in the sop i mean we 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 do at the beginning of the sop talk about 
why why we're doing this. What, but it's, yeah, it, but but it's the, more the, the general result. procedure itself, not, exactly. not so any the, individual study. Right, and what the expected right, results right. are. Um, but it's not necessarily of how, how it came about. Um, you know, so that's a, that's a piece of it that we don't currently have. And, and I mainly ask because we don't do that well either. Like, we make lots of decisions that... I, I feel that, like I need an SOP wiki. Yeah, with yeah. With blue links to the stories well, even, of why. Even, <laughs> even that, yeah. Right. Like, yeah, stories you just are pull always the video good. Footage the, 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 of the, going across. Like, yeah, the, yeah, the story is... Wait, is, do you have that on video? Uh, somewhere. You might have <laughs> to show that. That's pretty fun. Um, yeah, it's very... We make a lot of decisions that affect things, you know, years down the road. And you talked about how you none of your procedures are necessarily sacred. Um, but you have to have that remembrance of why you are doing things to be able to throw out the things that don't make any sense mm-hmm. anymore. So you have to see, okay, why are we doing this? What was the decision behind that? So we have full knowledge of, oh, well, that doesn't apply anymore. We can throw, we were doing this. We didn't need to be doing this anymore. Yeah, no, and, that's and, I, I, and I'm interested if there's any industry that has that down. Yeah. And that's, and it's a very good, interesting point because some of it, a lot of it, when I think about the cleaning, you know, in Sometimes when I walk in through here, and I've been through a lot of breweries, and I've seen a lot of people clean a lot of different tanks, and then I look at some of the stuff that we put into place, and I'm like, that would probably look really odd to some people <laughs> at another why, brewery. Right? Yeah. Why? Why would you do it that way? But it, you know, then then you just hope that one of the guys is still around that remembers why you ever started doing that in the first place. And, and well, for me, I I actually like to get new blood also because of that because they'll ask that those questions because they'll ask those questions which forces them to bring that back up even if the original people that that happened to aren't here those stories can keep going by having new Mm -hmm. blood yeah but also the new blood people by bringing that up can also say well in my last place we had something similar but we did this Mm mm-hmm does that make more sense here or less? And that can bring yeah. in those new ideas. But, but sometimes that institutional knowledge of why you're doing it is lost, and it, it it may be lost and it doesn't apply, or it may be lost and it does apply, and you don't and, have... And you give it up because you don't remember why. Well, and I've yeah. seen it... Yeah, and I've seen it on the opposite of it, where, you know, I've... When, when I used to do process improvement as part of my, my role in IT, you know, I would go through and I would sit with people and I would ask that question. Well, why, why are you doing that? And you'd get that, well, we've always done it. Yeah. <laughs> and as you dig deeper, you realize that it had maybe had relevance 10 years ago, but since then they've put a new piece of software in place and that spreadsheet never went away because it was a, it was like a Linus in his blanket, you know, it just yeah. made that person feel good about, I got, well, I've, I've still got my spreadsheet. And we've even seen that here, you know, when we've implemented, um, a new ERP program and we had some issues with our logistics people because they had done everything before prior to on whiteboards and spreadsheets but when we actually gave them a piece of software they kept maintaining the whiteboards and spreadsheets <laughs> and after several months I was walking through and I'm like why are, what are you, what are you, why are you doing this I'm like well because we've always done it I'm like yeah but you, you have the software now and you entered it in the software I'm like yeah but we don't trust the software I'm like <laughs> Okay. Pay a lot of money for that software. Exactly. And I was like, you're entering the same thing in the spreadsheet and writing the same thing on the whiteboard. I don't even know why you have the whiteboard and the spreadsheet, but now you have the whiteboard and <laughs> spreadsheet and a piece of software. <laughs> and, and they said, well, you know, we don't trust it. And, and they, they felt that they were going to be held accountable if something were to come missing in the warehouse. That was what it got down the software. When I, when I talked through it, they were like, well, at the end of the month, when we do an inventory reconciliation, if it's off, I'm going to get in trouble. I was like, why would you get in trouble? You're just the warehouse clerk. You just bring stuff in and out based on requisition. If something's not here, unless you stole it, it's really not your fault. And that's why we have the software and we can trace it and everything, figure out where, where it actually went. And when I made it that clear to her, she's like, well, so it's not my fault. I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm like, no. As long as you did what you were supposed to do and you entered stuff into the software and you pulled it out when it left and... I it's not your fault. You're not here to be the gatekeeper of, you know, and, and she had a concern. She just had this. And so we were able to ditch the whiteboard and the spreadsheet. I was pretty proud that day. All right. Just get her down to the, the one piece of software. that All she had to do is hit a button and said receive or ship, yeah, you know. Nice. And I was like, isn't your life so much easier now? <laughs> you don't have to be Gozer anymore. No, no. <laughs> 
Craig's like, what? <laughs> the key master and the gatekeeper? I got it. I just don't see how it fits into the <laughs> conversation. It's gatekeeper. Ah, uh, okay. Gozer. <laughs> this week's hottest picks. So, so Craig, let, let's hear your hottest picks. Um, we have, I, I have an English lady. He goes, hottest picks. I, I haven't worked. <laughs> I haven't got a paycheck for uh, four months, so I'm going to pick getting a paycheck. That's your pick. I, I'm I'm unprepared. <laughs> well, how was your fun employment? Uh, not that much fun, generally, because I was either looking for work or, um, you know, spending money I didn't have. So this is why we haven't had a podcast forever, because Craig's spending money he doesn't have, so he <laughs> so he can't afford electricity to yeah. podcast with me. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a pretty good pick. I appreciate that. I yeah, it's picks go. You know, I getting a paycheck is, yeah. is probably pretty far up. There. I spent three months without a client at the beginning of this year, and yeah. I, I'm feeling you. Uh, so, I, I guess uh, that's your only pick. You only have one this month. That's all I got. I don't have a computer in front of me either, so yeah, it's harder to see what's on my radar. Yeah, we wing it that way. Uh, and and my pick. So you guys have a new farmhouse sale here oh, yeah. at uh, public house brewing company. And, and I had it for the first time tonight. I saw it announced on Twitter the other day. I was like, I've got to get some of that. And it's, it's pretty fantastic. Thank so you. that is my pick tonight is the public house brewing company's farmhouse sale. If you're in Missouri, get it. If you're not in Missouri, move uh, <laughs> Joe. I expect to see you here. <laughs> um, and, and we do have a conference coming up, Strange Loop Conference, that I know that there are a lot of people that will be in town. Joe has spoken at it before, so he might be in town. So, oh. Joe, if you're in town, I'll buy you some public house beer. That's a good man there. Yeah. Though, little does he know, he's going to buy me a couple of bottles of scotch to trade for yeah. it. But <laughs> it's all fair. It's all fair. I guess now he knows since right. it's recorded. <laughs> So uh, th- that's my pick for the evening. I just have a drink pick. And uh, how about you, Josh? Um, I'm going to go a little different, I think, than than both. So um, with with my crazy life, uh, I, I don't get a lot of time with my family, with all everything that's going on. So I do try to take advantage of the time that I do get with them. And I, I would say my, my top pick right now is my son and I, who's four and a half, uh, We've almost been watching, a drinking age. Almost a drinking age. Halfway. <laughs> uh, we've been spending uh, evenings watching the uh, the newer Voltron on Netflix. <laughs> what? I know. Like, I know. Like, like computer generated Voltron? No, no, no. It's it's still animated, but it's a newer. It's not the older uh, ones that we grew up on. It's a. It's they've rebooted it and they've got it out on Netflix. I highly recommend it. It's great father son time, especially when they're four and you're trying to find that animated mo- show that's not. You know, horrible Mickey, Mickey Mouse Club kind of thing. GI Joe. Yeah, it's GI Joe. Yeah. So no, it's it's been good. I've been enjoying it. He's been enjoying it. We're both getting something out of it. So fantastic. Yeah. I'll have to I'll have to look that up and watch it with my boys. Yeah. For sure. And then try to corrupt my girls. With I, you know, it goes good with a farmhouse. <laughs> it does. Yeah. I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> Not for the four and a half year old though. <laughs> Well, again, thank you for coming, yeah. and uh, thanks for sharing all the stories with us and and about what you guys are doing here, and uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Thanks. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.